Good morning. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7, verse 1, um, to chapter 8, verse 2. It can be found on page 1753 in the Black Bibles, or you can follow along uh, from the screen behind me. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as the person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then... If she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit." and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good, then, become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know 
that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good what I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, this is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another work, sorry, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is, not, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Thanks so much, Rebecca. It's a tricky passage to read, that one. There's lots of eyes and this and that. It's a bit hard to follow along. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I didn't introduce myself before. My name is Carl. I'm the pastor of the church here. It's great to have you with us this morning. They say it's, they say it's relationship suicide, sneaking in an episode of that series that you're supposed to be watching with your significant other, but you go ahead and do without them knowing. The last series that Meredith and I watched was Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but the very first series that we ever watched together was The West Wing. It was well and truly before the days of streaming. Jemima, was, who was here for the birthday song, Turning Eleven, was just about to be born. Meredith had the time and the need to watch something on TV, and there was nothing better than watching Jed Bartlett as President of the United States make one lofty speech after another. For me, thinking back on the West Wing, there is one scene that stands out for me. Jed Bartlett, the President of the United States, is about to launch into yet another of his high and mighty speeches, and he's distracted by a woman who has not stood as he enters into the room. Her name is Dr. Jenna Jacobs. And Dr. Jacobs gets into an argument with the president. And as part of her argument, she quotes from the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, verses 22. And here's the president's reply. He says, while I have you here, I'm interested in selling my daughter into slavery, as is sanctioned by Exodus 21.7. She always clears the table. She speaks fluent Italian. What would be a good price for her? What about another, he says, my chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath in direct uh, disobedience of Exodus 35 too, which clearly says that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself or should I call the police? It goes on for a bit longer. And this is kind of like that Hollywood filmmaking at its best. It's emotional and it's well-crafted. But you know, I think the West Wing here, it asks 
a question that I think many of us might have today as well. What is the place of the Old Testament law for us today? I think Jed Bartlett's kind of scratching here where many of us might be itchy. Many of us probably wonder, what are we to do with the Old Testament today? I think it's a good question for us to be thinking through as we come to Romans 7 because at least one thing is clear from this chapter. It has something to say about the Jewish law. What I mean by the Jewish law, well, that term can mean a number of different things, but I think put most simply, think of the Jewish law as the first five books of the Bible. Now, as I look around this room, I think it's probably fair to say that few of us have ever really lived under Jewish law. Few of us are likely to be ethnically Jewish. And so you may wonder, why don't we just skip over Romans chapter 7? Why don't we just move on to the good stuff that's coming in chapters 8 and so on? But Jeb Bartlett gives us, I think, one reason why we should consider this chapter. We need each of us to have an answer to what is the role of the Jewish law for Christians today. And the second reason why I think this chapter is worth us considering, worth us digging into together... Uh, is given by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he suggests that chapter 7 illustrates dramatically what happens if we seek sanctification, in other words, if we seek to be made right before God in any way apart from through Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. If you seek sanctification through the law, it will slay you, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. Today I hope that Uh, Chapter 7 today will leave you seeking the Spirit of Christ, seeking the realm of Jesus. I hope you leave today confident and assured that those of us who place our hope and trust in Jesus, that there's an end to death, an end to the condemnation that we might otherwise face. I've told you a number of times as we've worked our way through this series that the book of Romans is a bit like a trek up Mount Lofty, that it's hard work. But it's also a bit of a journey that we're on, and and this uh, book is building on itself. And I want to remind you this morning of the path that we're on. So I'll ask you, if you will, turn back in your Bibles to chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. You'll find that on page 1751 if you don't have your black Bibles open, because these verses, I think, really set us up for chapter 7. Chapter 5, verse 20 says this. It says, the law, that's what we're looking at today, was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been talking about this over the last few weeks, but do you remember the two realms or the two reigns that are on view in this section of of Romans? In the first realm, we have the rule of Adam, and it's a realm that's characterized by sin and sin's ultimate destination, which is death. And in the other realm, we have the one that's ruled by Jesus. It's the realm of grace and righteousness and life. I want you to see that this idea of the two realms is still on view in chapter 7. Have a look at chapter 7, verses 5 and 6 with me. That's what it says. It says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, in other words, in the realm of Adam, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. 
But now by dying to once, what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see these two realms still at work here in this chapter also, the realm of sin and law. And see now it's contrasted with the realm of spirit and life. If you're finding this chapter a little bit confusing, maybe as Rebecca read it to you, you thought this is a, a difficult chapter to get your head around, you're not alone because this probably is the most difficult chapter in Romans to read. But I hope at least this much is clear for us this morning. No matter who we are, Our salvation is dependent on grace alone through Jesus. I hope you can see that the Jewish law is unable to save us. I want you to see instead that the law condemns. Do you see also that following our inner desires or being true to ourselves, that can't save us. Being a good person, even being the very best person, that can't save us. But for those of us who put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, well, for those people, there is no condemnation. And instead, with great joy, there is life and there is hope. So if you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to hold on to the knowledge that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That's where this section kind of ends today. That's where Paul is heading with the argument that he makes about the law that we read in chapter 7. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So where are we going to this morning? Well, firstly, I want you to see that those who are under the law can be released from it through the death they share with Jesus. If you're following along in your leaflet, you'll see that point there. Secondly, that the law is not sinful. Rather, as we saw in the kids' talk, the law kind of acts as a mirror. The last thing I want us to see in chapter 7 is that life is a struggle with the law. These three things, I think, will help us to see just how good it is to be in the realm of Jesus, in the realm where there is no condemnation. Now, I said before, but most of us today don't live under the law. But for Paul's original readers, then their context was a little different. Some, perhaps, of them may have been Jews. They may have been living under the Jewish law. They may not have been Jews, but they may have been living under the law as well. And so a question that might be asked by someone in that predicament is how is it possible that they might be released from the law and its obligations? And that's the question that is answered by Paul in the the first section of chapter 7. As I said, there are three sections. You'll see them in your outline. How can you be released from the law that had previously bound you? Well, Paul uses an illustration of marriage. I think we probably get, most of us probably get this illustration intuitively. A husband and wife are united, but only as long as they're alive. Of course, the marriage union doesn't extend after the death of a spouse. So if her husband dies, Paul says a woman is free to marry another man. And Paul equates this to the law, reminding his readers that they've died, died to the old way of life and are therefore no longer under the obligation of the law. I think verse 4 captures this pretty well. Let me read verse 4 to you. It says this, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. See, those who were under the law, through their union with Jesus, they are now no longer under obligation from the law. It's through death, a shared death, 
brought through their union with Jesus that results in a freedom from the law. So if those who lived under the Jewish law have now been released from the law, why then do we still have the law in our Christian Bibles? Why do we still have these chapters, these books? Why not just rip them out? Why not ratchet things up even a little bit more? The law and sin in Roman, the law and sin has, has been connected, it seems, in Romans so far. They seem to go hand in hand. We could ask another question. If sin and the law go hand in hand, is it possible that the law is actually a bad thing? I wonder what you think about that. Is the law a bad thing? Is it bad for us to read it today? Well, verses 7 to 13 of chapter 7, I think, seek to provide an answer to that question. Don't you see that the connection between sin and law has been mounted, so that in chapter 3, verse 20, you don't need to turn there, but chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans, Paul showed us that the law made us conscious of our sin. And in chapter 5, verse 20, we saw that the law made sin increase. So you might begin to wonder, really, is the law itself useful or was it a corrupting thing? Paul answers that for us in verse 7 of chapter 7. This is what he says. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And here's his answer. Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. So the law is not sinful, right? But it does show us what sin is. And by being shown for what it is, sin then goes on to complete its work. Now I reckon many of us probably know what this feels like. Let me illustrate this with a story. When I was about six or seven years old, I lived in London. I can still remember quite a little, quite a lot about London. I remember it as being a great place to live as a kid growing up. I remember uh, that London was pretty much characterised by concrete roads and brown brick buildings. That There wasn't much grass around in London. And I remember also that in London they seemed to have something against you walking on the grass. I've got a sign um, that Naveen's going to throw up on the uh, screen here. It seemed like every patch of grass that you found, there weren't many of them in London, had a sign like this on it. Now I think without a sign like this, I probably would have had no interest in walking on the grass. But these signs, they kind of operate like a challenge, right? How many steps on the grass before the caretaker catches you? How many steps before mum tells me to get off the grass? I think this is part of what's going on in these verses here. We saw this in the kids' talk. The law functions like a mirror. Now, if you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, you don't blame the mirror, do you? Similarly, the law is good in the sense that it's given by God. The law helps us to see what God is like. It shows us that he's perfect and holy and pure. And because the law highlights God's character, it also brings into focus our own sinfulness. It shows us we're nothing like God. It does that both for us today as we read the law and for those who lived under it. The law shows us what we're like, doesn't it? The third section of Romans chapter 7 is one of the most difficult passages in Romans to understand. It's a passage that's divided biblical scholars and biblical teachers for hundreds of years. 
If you're reading these words for the first time this morning or the first time in a long time and you're not the sort of person who likes to wade into these biblical controversies, then let me just tell you the conclusion of this section is a thanksgiving to God for the delivery that's available in Jesus Christ. The conclusion is that salvation is possible because of Jesus. You'll see that on verse 25 over the page and you'll see that at the start of chapter 8 as well. But perhaps you're the sort of person who enjoys thinking through controversy. If that's you, let me attempt to sketch out for you what's going on in this last section of chapter 7. Essentially, the controversy uh, involves uh, answering this, uh, this question. Who is the I in these verses? All week as I've been reading these verses, I keep coming back to this answer. The I must be Dr. Seuss. Certainly that seems to be how it reads. But let me read to you uh, these verses starting at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The eye certainly sounds like Dr. Seuss, doesn't it? But in reality, there are a number of suggestions put forward by Bible scholars and Bible teachers as to who this I might be. Let's start by considering what is probably the most simple and most straightforward way to read these verses. That is that the I is Paul. Paul speaking here about his own life. In other words, he's describing his own experience. Perhaps he's describing his life as a Christian. Now, if that's the case, let me read to you uh, his experience as a Christian. For I do not want, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I wonder if that sounds familiar for you today. It certainly sounds familiar for me. I mean, think of that sign that I had up before, the sign of keep off the grass. I know what I should do, but I end up doing what I do not want to do. Now, the grass is a silly example. Let's, let's make it more real for a minute. What I want to do as a parent is speak gently and clearly to my children. I want to be a parent with great patience. I want to do the right thing by my kids, especially when I'm tired. What I hate is that I might raise my voice or get frustrated with my children. Surely that's the best approach to be a patient parent with young children. And yet, when I'm tired and when the kids are not listening, what I hate, I do. You may be the same. It certainly does feel like Paul is describing the Christian experience at this point, isn't it? And certainly other parts of the Bible describe the Christian life as a race that we need to run, a race that will require discipline and hard work and endurance. The Bible acknowledges the difficulty of living for God and the traps and temptations of the world. And that fits with this section of Romans, doesn't it? 
That's one option, that Paul is being autobiographical in this section, that he's speaking about himself here. So why the confusion then? Why is there a controversy? Well, for some, the context of Romans makes this reading a little problematic. Let me explain. If you go back to, say, chapter 6, verse 4, we read this. It says this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We've been given a new life. The old life is gone. Well, come with me to verse 17 of chapter 6 where Paul says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, You've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Here's the controversy. If Paul has shown so recently in Romans that through Christ we're no longer slaves to sin, then doing what I know I should not do, well, well, that almost seems like we're back in slavery, doesn't it? Slaves to sin. So aware of this, aware of the context, others suggest that Paul is reflecting on his life before his conversion. In other words, the eye of this passage is Paul before he knew Jesus. That may be a possibility. It certainly fits uh, within this chapter about living life under the law. might mean Paul is reflecting on his own life. But there's further controversy because others find that account problematic as well because Paul has another time in the Bible where he writes an autobiographical statement about his life. And you'll find that in Philippians chapter 3. I'd love you to come there with me. It's on page 1825. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 4. This is how Paul describes himself in another section of the Bible. He says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's what he says about himself. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, of course, Paul's making a different point in Philippians, and he's speaking kind of a positive statement about his life here rather than the negative that's on view in Romans. But even with that on view, some see difficulty in the contradiction between Paul describing his life living under the law in Philippians to his life living under the law in Romans. And so recognizing this, there's one other school of thought, and that is to see the I in this passage as a rhetorical device. Certainly rhetorical devices were used often in letter writing at the time that Paul wrote. And we might not be so familiar with the I in this passage as a rhetorical device, but most of us know what a rhetorical question is, right? Most of you will not. Perhaps then the I in this passage is a rhetorical device to speak about Israel. So Paul groups himself and his fellow Jewish Christians together. After all, Israel was under the burden of the law. And it's the law that this chapter is primarily about. We can take a step further to say it's not just Israel, but Paul is here considering Israel now from his Christian viewpoint. I'm reading it this way then. This is what life was like for Israel under the law. Even though they tried to embrace the law, the law still turns and condemns them. Now, I want to say that there are plenty of good Bible teachers on all sides of the debate in this question. 
think this is one of those areas where we need to walk humbly and with good grace as we try and understand what the Bible is saying. Because there are differences of opinion here. And these differences may make some difference to how we read the Bible. Let me just give you an example about how this might matter. If you read the I here as Paul speaking autobiographically, you may feel a great sense of solidarity with Paul when you trip up in your Christian walk. Solidarity in that sense, then you'll read Paul here as also tripping up in his walk. But if you read the I as Israel, then you might come to a different conclusion with respect to your solidarity at this point. The approach you take does matter to some sense. But what I want you to see is that this chapter is all heading in one direction. It's showing us the great benefit of living in the realm of Jesus as opposed to living in the realm of Adam. So put the controversy behind us to an extent now. If you've gone to sleep for the last minutes, last few minutes as we've tackled through that, I'd love you to wake up now because we're getting to the end and the meaty bit of chapter 7. So the end of where Paul is driving us is to the majesty of chapter 8 and the true and certain revelation that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've been thinking about mowing the lawn this afternoon or what you're going to have for lunch, now's the time to come back. So the Old Testament, in a number of places, foreshadows a time when the law will be superseded and replaced. In Jeremiah 31, we read this. That's what we read in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. And then Ezekiel, we read this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. For Jews living under the law, pleasing God was a matter of walking in obedience with his laws or walking in accordance with his laws. That's not the case for us today, is it? Let me read to you what Brian Rosner says on this He says, it is striking that Paul never says that believers in Christ are to walk according to the law. Instead, he recommends walking in accordance to a different norm. Not as the Gentiles do, not in in idleness or as enemies of the gospel, but instead to walk according to the Spirit, following the apostolic example, living to the apostolic teaching, walking in the truth of the gospel, Walking in Jesus. We are to walk by faith and with wisdom. The Jewish law is not unimportant for us today because it speaks of the same God that we worship today. It highlights the holiness and the majesty of our God and it shows us what sin is for ourselves. It's not without our place. So I want to say to to Jed Bartlett, to the president, in the West Wing, we've died to those things. We're not obligated to them. But they still matter because they show us what our God is like and how far we are from him. They show us God's holiness and our sinfulness. And yet here's the reality for us today. We are not saved through observing the law. None of us are. We are saved and we are promised life through our union with Jesus. We're saved by placing our faith in him and walking with him. 
Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the Christian life is a life without ethics or a moral compass. Far from it. We're to walk with God himself in the person of Jesus. But the Old Testament law has been replaced by the Spirit of Christ. I want to finish today by reading to you uh, some words from chapter 8. This is where Paul has been heading for us. In chapter 8, verse 9, I'm going to start there and and read uh, to the end of verse 11. Paul says this, he says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. We have much to give thanks for because of the spirit of Christ that lives in us. I'm going to pray and give thanks to God for that now. Father God, we thank you for what you've done in this world through your son. Thank you that because of his death and our union with him, we have been set free from the obligation to live under the law. Thank you that because of your Son and His Spirit, you have given us life and hope and peace with you. We give you thanks for Him and we praise you for what you've done in us. Amen.